The Sheen Center presents Sheen Talks, the art of controversy, moderated by Gloria Purvis. Join us at the Sheen Center on November 15th at 7 p.m. for Communion Wars. Bringing together guests of differing views, Sheen Talks, the art of controversy, leads with civility, inclusiveness, and a willingness to listen. For tickets and information, visit sheencenter.org. Use code AMERICA to save $5 on tickets. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Professor Greg Hillis. Greg Hillis is Professor of Theology and Religious Studies at Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky. In the last few years, he has turned his attention to the life and writings of Thomas Merton, the famous Trappist monk from Kentucky, whose literary state is housed at the Merton Center at the university. In addition to teaching a popular undergraduate course on Merton, Dr. Hillis has written both academic articles and popular articles on his life and thought. He has also delivered lectures around the United States on Merton's theology. His book on Thomas Merton, Man of Dialogue, Thomas Merton's Catholic Identity, is published with Liturgical Press. He is currently working on a book-length biography of Father August Thompson. I wanted to talk to Professor Hillis today because November is Black Catholic History Month, and I wanted to expose people to Father August Thompson and to his relationship with Thomas Merton, the monk, and his experiences as a Black man, a Black Catholic priest in the United States, and Father Thompson's experiences and analysis on the ills in the church uh, vis-a-vis racism. Father Thompson actually entered the minor seminary, that's a high school seminary, of the Divine Word Fathers in Bay St. Louis at 15 years of age. I, I just think that's amazing. And then he became the first Black priest ordained for the Diocese of Alexandria. He was not allowed to be ordained in his home diocese in the Diocese of Lafayette, Louisiana. So he was ordained in the Diocese of Alexandria. Father August Thompson, to me, frankly, is a saint in the making. And we need to know his story, his story of love, his story of really being what the community needed, a reservoir of hope, a courageous and fearless defender of his people, and a kind of self-sacrifice that could only be made possible, I think, because he was a priest, because he was an unmarried celibate without children, was he able to give himself so fully and freely to serve the Black community. And also to be able to withstand a lot of the abuse that he received at the hands of the white community in Alexandria, Louisiana, including death threats from the Klan. And he had a cheerfulness about him. He was like, ah, if they get me, at least I'll die young or something to that effect. And I think you should know who he is and maybe consider a lot of Merton's analysis of the white liberal vis-a-vis racism, because it does, I think, impact how Father Thompson struggled, I guess, in dealing with his own bishop. And also to really examine how the sin of racism concretely impacted and impacts the life of Catholics in the United States. 
So I'm excited about this conversation that I have with Dr. Hillis, and I hope you learn a lot from it. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we published or even everything we talk about in this podcast. And you know what? That's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by following this podcast on your favorite podcast app and by getting a digital subscription to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Professor Hillis is up next. Professor Gregory Hillis, welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast. I'm so happy to finally have you on the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You know, you've done some amazing writing about Thomas Merton and Father August Thompson. Probably a lot of people have heard of Thomas Merton, the monk, but may not be familiar with Father August Thompson. You know, Father August Thompson, from the things that I've read about him, I mean, I'm getting a little choked up here, was a true priest of God, in my opinion, especially how he still cared for these souls who vehemently hated him because he was a Black man. And I think one of the things that he talked about, I think somebody said, well, how do they see you down there, the white Catholics, I guess? He says, as a Negro first, as a Negro second, and then third as a priest, something along those lines. And so I know when you've written about Father August Thompson, you've referred to him as an oppressed Black Catholic priest. And I imagine to some people hearing that, they're like, what do you mean an oppressed Black Catholic priest, especially in the 20th century? I mean, he was in the 1960s. He lived until 2019. How could he have been an oppressed Black Catholic priest? So could you unfold some of that for our listeners? Sure. So Father Thompson, when he was a young man, felt a calling to the priesthood. And his white priest was very supportive, but his own diocese of Lafayette was not. The bishop was not interested in ordaining a black man to the priesthood. He went to seminary anyways, and it was Bishop Greco of the Diocese of Alexandria who ordained him. He was willing to allow, allow, he was willing to accept Father Thompson as a priest in the diocese, and so he became the first Black Catholic priest in the diocese. Which diocese was that? This is the Diocese of Alexandria. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Given that you would think that maybe Bishop Greco and Father Thompson had a good relationship, they didn't. And part of that was because from Father Thompson's perspective, Bishop Greco was oblivious to the ways in which he and the Black Catholic population of Alexandria were treated, not only as second-class citizens within the society, but as second-class Catholics within the church. He was frequently left out of gatherings of priests, retreats, and whatnot. Father Thompson was. Yes, Father Thompson Mm -hmm. was because he was Black. So Uh, I have to stop you right there. I mean, that to me is so scandalous and sickening. I mean, we're not talking the 1800s. We're not even talking the early 1900s. We're talking in the 1960s, which, by the way, 
I believe Father Thompson was ordained shortly after the bishops had released a statement on racism. And yet <laughs> you, you hear these things, which to me would be so obvious to any shepherd that my one black sheep is missing from the fold of my priest when we get together. So it just, oh. It is incredible. And of course, a number of white Catholics in the diocese refused to even acknowledge his priesthood. They wouldn't call him father. Mm. He wasn't allowed to say mass at a number of white Catholic churches. He talked about how he was frequently felt very wary about going into the home of a dying white Catholic for fear that he would cause them to commit the mortal sin of racism when they saw him. You know, he wanted to minister to them, but he didn't want to minister to them in such a way that it could cause them to sin. That's a remarkable level of selflessness in yes. the face of racism, explicit racism. And it also strikes me that he had a soberness about how pervasive that sin is in the diocese, right? That he's like, look, I already know these people are super sick, if you will, spiritually sick in that way. And while I want to come and minister to them, I realize their reception of me because of how they are spiritually wounded by the sin may cause them to, at the end of their life, commit this grave evil that further jeopardizes. I mean, that's a true shepherd, you know, in my opinion. And this is what ends up getting him in trouble with the bishop, is that he spoke out for Black Catholics in the diocese. Yeah. He said, you know, there are a number of things going on. For example, there was a, a white priest who was assaulted after Mass for giving Black and white kids First Communion together at the altar. And there was a clear demarcation between white and black parishes. And there was a sense, you know, Father Thompson talked about this in an interview that he did with John Howard Griffin, oh, yeah. who was a civil rights leader. Um, he wrote Black in, Like Me, didn't he? He wrote Black Like Me, that's right. right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He did an interview in a magazine called Ramparts, which was a Catholic literary and political review at the time. And Father Thompson talked about how you know, it was just generally understood that a black Catholic was not welcome at a white Catholic parish unless the distance to their parish was too far. If it was too far, then they could come to the white parish, but they had to sit at the back and they couldn't go up for communion until all the whites in the mm -hmm. congregation had gone up for communion. What an affront against God. Lord have mercy that in his own house, they are going to impose uh, sinful human relations to say that some of you Catholics, while you may be Catholic, you got to sit in the back and you can't even receive until all of us. I mean, it's just such a, an affront against the Lord. And just it's sickening that this was openly practiced in a diocese in the United States in the 20th century. Lord. And Alexandria was not the only diocese where this was taking place, of course. Right. And Father Thompson just said, you know, think of that circumstance being something that would encourage Black people to want to become Catholic. Right. And he saw this as a problem of evangelization and of the Catholic witness. I mean, the Eucharist is the sacrament of unity, and it was being weaponized to oppress, essentially. You have to say, under those circumstances— how do you expect anyone, any Black person, to be attracted to a church like this? 
Well, and the real, what bothers me most about the story is that, you know, he gave this very detailed and heartfelt interview with John Howard Griffin. Yeah. And when it was published, Bishop Greco, he was in Rome, I believe for the Second Vatican Council. He sent a really harsh letter to Father Thompson, essentially saying that you owe everything to the church and you have betrayed her you know, that you have brought tremendous scandal to the church by speaking in the way that you have. And the reason why we have that letter is because Father Thompson was so bothered by the bishop's reaction to his interview, because all Father Thompson felt like he was doing was telling the truth. Right. And the bishop responded in this way, and Father Thompson wrote to Thomas Merton and included a copy of that letter and basically said, how should I respond? What should I do? I don't know what to do. And I have to tell you, when I was a while ago, when I came across this interview, this information, I just thought, wow, the bishop is straight up gaslighting Father Thompson. (laughs) I mean, the scandal is not that Father Thompson spoke about it. The scandal is that it actually happens in the church by these white Catholics under the care of the bishop. And it was my understanding also that Father Thompson had, prior to this interview, had actually had conversations with the bishop himself about what was going on with Black Catholics. So it wasn't like the bishop didn't know. It's just now that the whole world was going to know because Father Thompson gave this honest interview. So, Yeah, and Bishop Greco, he gave lip service to you know, the issue of racism. But when it came to desegregating the Catholic schools in Alexandria, for example, he dragged his feet because Mm. he was worried about causing scandal to white Catholics. And that is one of those situations that is extremely frustrating to read. And imagine being Father August Thompson and experiencing that on the ground, having your own bishop not being a leader when he could have been. You know, what Father Thompson did is, you know, in the absence of white leadership, he stepped into that void. So in his various parishes, for example, and I didn't write about this as much in the essay that you read that I sent to you, Mm -hmm. but one of the things that was happening, you know, the civil rights legislation that got passed was very helpful, but essentially what it gave African-Americans the right to do is to sue yeah. for their rights. In other words, mm-hmm. it gave them protection under the law. But that's a very complicated thing when the legal system is run by a white majority. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And so what was happening in his parish was that if a black Catholic family or they didn't even have to be Catholic, you know, mm-hmm. Father Thompson was just kind of a leader for the community as a whole. If they wanted to sue for their rights, you know, they would go to a lawyer and get legal documents notarized. Well, the only notaries were white, and Mm -hmm. they were, when they found out that there was a suit coming, they would inform the Klan that this was happening. And so what Father Thompson did is he undercut everything, and he himself became a notary. So that's... People could come to him, he could notarize their legal documents and basically undercut what was happening in the diocese. In addition to that, you know, at another parish that he went to, you know, he felt that there weren't sufficient opportunities being given to black families to farm their own farms, to open up their own businesses, to land on their own feet financially. Right. 
And so he actually went up to Nova Scotia in Canada to get education on the cooperative movement. And he became the president of the Southern Consumers Cooperative Movement, which was a, a black cooperative that financially assisted and educated black farmers and business people. Mm. This is all extracurricular work to right. the work that he was doing <laughs> as a priest. When he saw that the church, the white church, was not coming in to help. He essentially became a civil rights leader, not necessarily so much, well, he did speak out against the church, obviously, but also to make structural changes. Yes. To endeavor to better the economic and social conditions of Black Catholics in the diocese. The thing that strikes me about this is I imagine he got even more death threats. I didn't know he received death threats from the Klan already just by being a Black Catholic priest. But I imagine being able to help facilitate these lawsuits probably made it even more dangerous for him. But I also think of the freedom he had as an unmarried celibate that what are they going to do? Go kill his children? Go kill his wife? No, he doesn't have any of that. And in fact, I remember in... When he was talking, I think, was it with uh, John Howard Griffith? He said, oh, don't fret. You know, I'll just go. If they get me, they get me. And, you know, that I'll die young or something like that. And I just thought, what a freedom to love, you know, others and to help others without having concern for himself. And the freedom that being a priest gave him to be able to love and serve in that way is remarkable. But he's also experiencing then from the church not only no support, but active resistance from others in terms of the work that he's doing. So he was a founding member as a result of that in the National Black Catholic Clergy Caucus. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. And at its inaugural meeting in 1968, he was a founding member. And of course, at that meeting, the National Black Catholic Clergy Caucus declared the American Catholic Church to be a white racist institution that was in need of institutional and attitudinal change. Well, you can imagine how well that went over, uh, and I'm <laughs> yeah. sure you know exactly how well that went over yeah. um, mm. from the church hierarchy. But Father Thompson was just in the mix in all of that. We'll be back in a minute. The Gloria Purvis podcast is supported by the Hank Center at Loyola University, Chicago. On November 16th, the Hank Center welcomes filmmakers Simonetta Detalia Wiener and TJ Burden for an in-person screening of Unguarded, a film that tells the story of successful restorative justice work and prison reform in Brazil and America. All are welcome. To learn more about the Hank Center and its programs, please visit www.luc.edu slash ccih. I'm sure listeners are probably saying, well, how is it that this Black priest in Louisiana suffering from all this racism could then turn around and confide in and seek the guidance of this white cloistered monk in Kentucky, Thomas Merton? So in the same issue of Ramparts Magazine, where Father Thompson gave his interview with John Howard Griffin, 
there was an essay by Thomas Merton, and it was called Letters to a White Liberal. Mm-hmm. This was in December of 1963. It was their Christmas edition. And actually, Father Thompson is on the cover of that magazine. Yeah. It's quite a striking photo, actually. It is. It's really nice. Mm-hmm. He's handsome. Handsome man, too. Very, yeah. <laughs> Very handsome, young, healthy-looking black man on the cover with his Roman collar. I, I loved it. I loved the cover when I saw it. Yeah, it's incredible. And in this Letters to a White Liberal, this was the really the first foray that Merton made in his writings on the topic of race. He's well known, of course, in his early writings, he wrote about prayer and contemplation. Of course, many people have read The Seven Story Mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does talk a little bit about race in there, in The Seven Story Mountain. And then in his later years, a lot of people know about the writings that he did about the topic of war, as well as his interreligious dialogue, but less well known as his writings on the topic of race and the problem of racism. And his letters to a white liberal really contain a very nuanced critique of white American society as structurally and systemically racist. And this is in the 60s. He's saying this. Merton is saying this, and he's writing this. Uh, and, and I know you say this is like his most important work on race, this essay that he wrote, Letters to a White Liberal. Yeah, this is really insightful. You know, Merton's writings on race ended up getting a fair amount of attention at the time, not only from Father Thompson, but John Lewis. When Pope Francis came to speak at the U.S. Congress, Representative John Lewis released a press release that talked about how moved he was to hear Pope Francis refer to Thomas Merton, because when he crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge Mm -hmm. in Selma, he was carrying a book by Thomas Merton in his backpack. He saw Merton as a kind of civil rights leader, even though he was a cloistered monk in the middle of Kentucky. Uh, But he was seen by Father Thompson and by others as somebody who got it when very few did. And I think the reason why he was able to get it is because even though he was a white Catholic, he was separate from the society. In other words, he was able to look at it from the outside. I kind of, when I talk about it with my students, it's a little bit like, you know, when couples go to marriage counseling, they need Mm -hmm. somebody on the outside to be able to look in and see the kind of problems that those who are entrenched in it aren't able to see. And from his cloistered position as an outsider, he talks about it as being a guilty bystander, right? That he was able to sort of diagnose what was going on. And that's why Father Thompson confided in him. What was his diagnosis, like overall high level from, I think it's called the Black Revolution Letters to a white liberal is the title of it. What high level, because I know he made many points in it, but what do you think of the key points that he made that, you know, first of all, probably would <laughs> shock folks, but also signal to people like Father Thompson that, you know what, he gets it. Well, like the title suggests, it's a letter to a white liberal. So the white liberal he defines as somebody who is, at least in their political views, is very much on the side of the oppressed Black population. Mm -hmm. They say all the right things. They participate in the rallies. They go on protests, etc. But, Merton says, that's all that they're willing to do. That in a society that has so privileged white people, when they realize that genuine equality is going to mean that they're going to have to give up some of their power, 
that they're going to have to give up some of their wealth, that they're going to have to give up their segregated existence in their white neighborhoods, that they'll put on the brakes and Mm -hmm. that they will, up till now, they feel good, right? It gives them a good feeling to go to these protests and to be on the side of right. But when it comes to actually making concrete change, the white liberal won't do anything at all. And white liberals didn't like his essay very much. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine. I imagine not. But I was like, was Merton not silenced after that? <laughs> I mean, I was kidding. Just... No, not only was he not silenced after that, but he continued writing about the problem of racism. But Merton wrote later on, and part of the critique of nonviolence from the perspective of people who are oppressed is, well, it's all nice for you to tell us to be nonviolent. Yeah. But there's a sense in which Many people, many black people in the, during the 1960s felt that white people were telling them how they should and should not respond to the racism that they were experiencing. That, right. well, you need to do it nonviolently. We still hear this today, of course. Yeah, I was going to say, I was the like, black, yeah. <laughs> Lives Matter movement and the yes. uprisings. Yeah, people were very particular that the whole idea of racial justice, this whole movement was corrupt because they perceived that some black people didn't respond perfectly nonviolently. That's exactly right. And Merton wrote some essays on the Black Power Movement. And they were very sympathetic essays, which is surprising. Merton, one of the things Merton is well known for is his advocacy of nonviolence. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, when it comes to violence, I'm paraphrasing here, but he essentially says, I can't pretend to understand what it is like to be a victim of the kind of racism that Black people are experiencing in this country. Mm -hmm. So I cannot tell them, don't respond with violence, right? Mm -hmm. Now, he Mm -hmm. said, I'm not going to be going into any basements and making Molotov cocktails. He says, you know, I'm I'm not going to do that. But he says, and this is a direct quote, he says, in the end, I trust the Black man. Oh, powerful. You know, and I, I think some people would even be surprised to know that Martin Luther King who is an advocate of nonviolence, as they moved about with his team, they had guns for self-defense. So they did believe in defending themselves. There's also a group called the Deacons of Defense. They were like, all right, you know, we're not having none of that nonviolent stuff. You come up in our neighborhood shooting up, we're going to have people in trees with rifles making sure you were met with the appropriate response as a means of self-defense. But there's one other aspect, though, that I was reading what you're writing the nonviolence in the civil rights movement was not only to achieve Black liberation, but it was also the redemption of white people. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so Merton didn't understand nonviolence to be a simply a tactic to sort of get one's own way. He thought that if nonviolence was simply a tactic to get your own way, then that was just another form of violence. Mm. What he understood nonviolence to be was as a form of dialogue rooted in the idea of the dignity and value of the white population, even the racist white population, Mm -hmm. recognizing that there was a capacity for good and a capacity for transformation, even in the most vile racist. And so, you know, Merton, this was in some of the letters that Merton wrote with Father Thompson and also in letters to a white liberal. He said, what the nonviolent movement is endeavoring to do is not simply to bring about sympathy for 
the black population, but actually to bring about the conversion of the white population, that they need to be confronted by the sinfulness of the society itself and the sinfulness that resides in the hearts of so many people. And that it's not about forcing them to change, but about loving them into change. Mm, that is that is so incredible. So incredible to hear. But I also think about today, how prescient a lot of what he says is today. And he talks about the white liberals, you know, goose stepping down. Was it Massachusetts? And I was like, we didn't we have that January 6th <laughs> on Constitution Avenue that you saw these people reacting in this particular way to their perceived loss of power because they thought the guy that they wanted in the White House, you know, didn't win. And it's a guy who some people associate with white supremacy. And I had spoken with Professor Robert Pape actually on the show, and it was some of the people in that crowd, the vast majority, were people who lived in diverse neighborhoods and perceived that there was a loss of power or standing for white people. Just astonishing. And uh, Thomas Merton diagnosed that way back. But I'm curious, with you as a white person, a white man, encountering with Thomas Merton is saying about the white liberal and about racism in the United States, how did that strike you? Well, I, I have a kind of unique perspective in that I'm not from the United States. So mm-hmm. I I have American citizenship because my mother was American, but I didn't move here until 14 years ago. And I lived the first 30 or so years of my life in Canada. Okay. And I need to be clear, Canada has its own severe issues with racism, particularly when it comes to First Nations peoples. So I'm not at all suggesting that it was a racism-free uh, society. Right. Um, but I didn't, I wasn't aware when I moved down here of what racism looked like on Mm. the ground. The segregation in Louisville is really quite striking. It is, I don't know if you've ever been to Louisville, but it is literally one road. It is 9th Street. It's a double-laned road. It's intentionally double-laned to make it difficult to cross. And on the west side of 9th Street is the predominantly black population. And on the east side of 9th Street is the predominantly white population. And I had no idea that such things existed in the United States. I mean, that that shows just kind of a level of naivety and ignorance on my part. But I just had no idea. And then I sent my oldest son to school. And I remember very clearly him getting an invitation to a birthday party. And this was when he was in first or second grade. I can't remember. And so I said, well, do you want to go? And he said, yeah. And it was in the West End of Louisville, the Mm -hmm. the quote-unquote black end of of Louisville. Mm -hmm. And so we went there. And it turns out that this kid had invited every single one of his classmates to his birthday party, and Isaac was the only one who showed up. My son was the only one who showed up. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. How devastating. And it was because it was in the West End. There was a bouncy house, and Isaac brought a gift, and he had an amazing time. But I was essentially the only white adult there and Isaac was the only white kid there. I asked one of my neighbors, I said, you know, this is what happened. Isaac was the only one. And and she just immediately asked, well, where was it? And I said, well, it was in Shively. And she just looked at me and said, well, hell no. She said. Just straight out. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And I was like, you know, all of a sudden I was confronted with, obviously I'm not 
being confronted with racism against myself or any really any kind of oppression, right? Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden I was like, oh, this society has issues, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And it took me a little while to kind of realize what was going on. And then, of course, I read Merton. And a lot of what he had to say made a lot of sense. Oh, gracious, gracious. You know, I just, I'd want to say I'm surprised, but I just can't be anymore, you know? But I do have hope. And I also marvel at the love of people like Father August Thompson and his fidelity and love of Jesus Christ and remaining Catholic and remaining a priest of God and ministering to a people in need, both black and white. But yet he didn't have a bitterness that alienated him from the priesthood, which I think is remarkable. And there's so much about him that, frankly, again, I think we need to look into opening a cause for Father August Thompson, just based on the things that I've read about him, the little that I've read and understanding how much he suffered and yet never, ever turned away from anything. And yet you had an encounter with Father Thompson, which I'm hoping you share with our listeners because I think it's just incredible. Yes. So I was in Alexandria for two weekends and I had gotten to know these deacon candidates quite well. And when I found out about Father August Thompson and about his witness, I had started reading a little bit more about him. I asked if I could meet him and I I asked the deacon who was in charge of the group to introduce me. And at this time, uh, Father Thompson was in his 90s and had dementia. And Mm. so he said, well, just so you're aware, you probably aren't going to be able to have a detailed conversation with him. And I said, that's fine. I just want to meet him. And so he was sitting in the car. This deacon took him to mass every Sunday. So they Mm. got to know each other pretty well. And I just briefly mentioned Thomas Merton and John Howard Griffin. And Father Thompson didn't recall either one of them dementia had robbed him of those memories. Mm -hmm. And so realizing that I wasn't going to be able to have a conversation with him, I just said, well, Father Thompson, could I get a blessing from you? And he grabbed my arm tightly with his left hand. And then with his right hand, he just pressed down on my head Mm -hmm. and said, Heavenly Father, this is your son. In Jesus, he is our brother. Fill him with the grace and blessings he needs to do your work, for there is much work he needs and must do. Allow him to feel your love and let him know that I love him too. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it was the most beautiful blessing that I ever received. And he died the next year on August 10th, 2019. He was 93. Mercy. And you got to see the light of Christ, I bet, in his eyes. So he probably perked up right away. Oh, that is so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that story with us. So Father August Thompson, you know, we're going to remember him. And thank you so much for writing what you have about him and his relationship with Merton. And may it instruct us Catholics going forward or any person of goodwill of the work that we need to do to reconcile the human family. Yeah, absolutely. And and my hope is to write more about him. I've started work on a larger biography of Father Thompson, and hopefully I'm able to make him better known throughout the whole Catholic community. And we'll pray for that. We'll pray for that intention. And when you get it done, give me a call. <laughs> I would love to read it. I'd love to read I will. it. 
I will. Thank you so much, Professor Greg Hillis, for joining me on the Gloria Purpose Podcast. And thank you. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and, well, sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. And by the way, you can also follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and it's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.